Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Listen, all you New Yorkers. Hello. I hope no one's eating dinner. Something like that. What's up, everybody? It's 10 o'clock on Monday night, which means it's time for the next best thing. Dear Jesus. I'm your host, Jonathan B. Lerner, and I'll be with you for the next two hours. Well, get ready. Don't go anywhere. We have a great, 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 great show lined up for you tonight. I can't even contain myself. But before we get to any of that, we'd like to kick the show off by doing what we always do, and that is review all of the great and the not-so-great things that have happened on... This Day in History. Today is October the 16th. National Department Store Day, National Feral Cat Day, and, of course, National Dictionary Day. On this day in 1758, National Dictionary Day was created in honor of Noah Webster's birthday, the Dictionary Guy. On this day in 1925, Angela Lansbury was born. Oh, happy birthday, Angela. On this day. In 1951, Little Richard, you know, woo, held his first recording session in Atlanta, Georgia. I know, it's like he was here. On this day, in 1978, Poland's Karol Josef Chodzitla was elected Pope John Paul II. He was so happy to change his name, let me tell you that much, he told me. And last but not least, on this very day in 2008, the iTunes Music Store reached 200 billion television episodes sold. I know, we all remember where we were when the iTunes Music Store reached 200 billion television episodes sold. What could be more important than that? The answer is nothing. I'm stalling now because I've run out of little tidbits. National Feral Cat Day. Can you believe there's such thing as National Feral Cat Day? Couldn't find who invented it. Couldn't find why it was invented at all. But it does exist. And today is National Feral Cat Day. Okie dokie, see ya. That's what happened on this day in history. And who knows? Perhaps we'll make history right here tonight on Radio Free Brooklyn and be studied for years to come. But probably not. You're listening to The Next Best Thing. I'm John Lerner. Stay tuned. Holy sweet mother of God, it is 10 o'clock on a Monday night, so you know what that means. Is it time for your favorite show ever? No! But it is time for the next best thing. I'm your host, Jonathan B. Lerner, keeping you company every Monday night from 10 until midnight right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Can you hear me? One second. Testing. One, two, three. Are we on? Great. Anywho... Before we get into what's going on in the news, what's going on in the world, let's do the housekeeping that we always have to take care of. Let's just get it out of the way right off the top. You can tweet at us. We are at Next Best Radio. That's at Next Best Radio. Go ahead and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Facebook. A lot of stuff gets posted on our Facebook page, stuff that we talk about in any given episode, information, links to pertinent sites, all that stuff usually goes up on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash NBT radio. Also, if you're really feeling like you want to go all out and write it's more than 140 characters, more than something you'd feel comfortable posting on a Facebook wall, you can always feel free to send us an email. We are at nextbestthing at radiofreebrooklyn.org. And lastly, we do ask you to remember that we are fully listener and producer supported. If you like what you hear on Radio Free Brooklyn, if you like what you hear tonight, please consider going to our website, going to this show's page, and donating a little something-something to keep us in business. If you like what you hear tonight, well, a donation could ensure that you will get to hear more next week and the weeks after that. Uh, if you feel so inclined, you can go to rfb.nyc slash nbt. Again, that's rfb.nyc slash nbt. Oh, man, that was exhausting, wasn't it? 
It was for me. I'm sure it was for you too. So that's all the housekeeping I can think of right now. If I've forgotten anything. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Good. Here's what happened to baby Jane. She didn't grow up. She just grew old. She was waiting for that big day that her daddy said would come. That's what happened to baby Jane. Here's what happened to baby Jane. She thought the world was at her feet. That is what her daddy said was true. But her daddy didn't always know. Your daddy doesn't always know. What happened to Jane? What really happened to Jane? And that's what happened to Jane. All right. What really happened to baby Jane? I sure as hell don't know. I was nowhere near born when that movie came out. But it is relevant to the show we're going to do tonight. That song, if you couldn't figure it out, was... I don't actually know if it was used in the film, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. But it did come out right around the same time as a rare single. And it featured, get this, the girl, this main singer of that song was the girl who played the young baby Jane Hudson in the movie. And of course, that spoken dialogue in the middle, whatever happened to baby Jane? That was the late, great Betty Davis, who couldn't sing to save her life, and so she didn't try. She just spoke the lyrics in a dramatic fashion. And who can blame her? Nobody. The show we're going to do tonight is in line with our October series, which is celebrating All Hallows' Eve. And I don't know if you can hear all the creaks and cracks going on in this studio, but I sure can, and it makes me think, must be haunted, what else could it possibly be? <laughs> so, perfect. The witching hour, the witching month, All Hallows' Eve is coming soon. And we are going to celebrate tonight. Last week, we celebrated by taking an in-depth look at the most haunted house in all the world. It is to be found in the sleepy seaside town of Amityville, an hour away from the hustle and bustle of New York City. It was a great show. If you didn't get to hear it, go ahead and check the podcast page. It's right there. It's actually the most recent show. Give it a listen. Tonight, we're going to be going over the scariest movies of all time. No. <laughs> oh, yes. Whoever the hell that was sure did get a kick out of the fact that we're doing the scariest movies of all time tonight. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit. Let's catch up. We haven't gotten to talk in a whole week. I hope everyone had a wonderful weekend. I'm getting sick. I don't know if you can hear it, but I bet as the night goes on, you'll be able to hear it. I am actually losing my voice, which sucks because, hey, if I lose my voice, how will I do this show? I don't even get it. But it's going to be all right. I'll make it through tonight. Hopefully by next week, it will have come and gone. Okay. Okay. Where's my notebook? I don't know where it is. Okay, cool. Well, we're going to jump right in, folks, because I don't even know if we'll get them all in. These movies are in no particular order, but they are all among the scariest movies of all time. And we're going to start with a classic. Nine, ten, 
Oh, so yes. Scary. Uh-oh. A Nightmare on Elm Street. And I am, of course, talking about the original 1984 version. Some of the sequels are okay. Most of them aren't. Because after, like, the third film, they kind of started turning Freddy Krueger into a tongue-in-cheek kind of villain. Like, instead of actually being scary, he became like a wink and a smile. Like, yeah, I'm gonna get you. <laughs> making jokes. Kind of just making fun of itself. I, what the hell's that about? I don't, I mean, that's not scary. So, we're talking about the original, the original one, maybe the first two or three. But, for those of you who don't know, this film, the plot revolves around four teenagers who are stalked and killed in their dreams, and thus, in reality, by Freddy Krueger. The teenagers, of course, are unaware of the cause of this strange phenomenon, but their parents hold a dark secret from long ago. Yes, and we find out eventually that Fred Krueger was basically a... he. In the original, we don't really know what his crimes were. Whether he was a kidnapper, a kid, you know, molester, we don't actually know. But we know that he caused harm to children. And so one night, as they often do in these stories, the parents all banded together and went after Freddy Krueger. Yes, they went after that son of a bitch once and for all. They took the law into their own hands and they burnt him to death. Oh my God. They burnt him to death. So to get revenge, he decided to come after not the parents, but all of the children in their dreams. And somehow he's able to invade their dreams and make it so that the pain and suffering and harm that he inflicts on them in their dreams converts to real life. In other words, if he takes his hand, which of course, as we all know, is covered with a glove that has knives for fingers, and jams it into your stomach, oh, you bleed. You bleed in real life. And so nobody's safe. You're never safe. When the kids start realizing that they're all having these dreams with this, this awful, evil man, and they start noticing, of course, that their friends are being murdered one by one, well, it's not good. And they realize they need to do two things. One, try and stay awake pretty much all the time. You can never go to sleep impossible and stay on their guard because you never know when you're going to be running through the hallways at school where's your path screw your and suddenly that bitch who just asked you for your pass well she's not just a normal bitch oh no not at all See, that's the thing. We all have bad dreams, and we've all had the experience of having a terrible nightmare. But then when we wake up, we have that overwhelming sense of relief that, oh, thank God it was just a dream. It's not real. I'm safe. You don't have that here. If you make it out of your dream alive, well, it's just a matter of time until you fall asleep again and are Oh, you are just a sitting duck for Freddy. Somebody there? Dana. Dana. Who the hell is that? Dana. Oh my God, indeed. And that's about how they all go. I never really did understand where the glove kind of came from. Did you? If you do know, tweet at us. Our Twitter handle is Next Best Radio, or of course, you can call right in and we can talk about it. Now, quickly before we move on to the next movie on our list, I just want to mention briefly how they did reboot this franchise in 2010. And for the first time, literally, in any of these movies, and there were way too many to count, for the first time in the 2010 reboot, 
Robert England did not portray Freddy Krueger. Oh, no, he handed that role off, finally, to Jackie Earl Haley. Jackie, I think that's his name, right? Yes, yes. Anyway, Jackie Earl Haley. And there were a couple things about it. I really liked it. I mean, I thought it was actually very good. It was different because, as I was saying earlier, in the original films, you never really truly know what Freddy's crimes were. At least I don't believe you did. In the reboot, oh, you knew. It was very obvious and it was made very clear. He was a child molester. No question about it. And that did kind of add a creepiness in kind of, you know, you feel like you need to take a shower element. But besides that, I I really did like the reboot. I don't quite understand why it didn't do very well. But you know who had an opinion on that? Oh, guess who? The original Freddy Krueger, Robert England himself. This is what he had to say on why the reboot why the reboot didn't quite catch on. Well, I'm happy to hand it off to Jackie. Jackie's a terrific actor. <coughs> All you have to do is watch his work in Breaking Away or, or watch his work in uh, uh, Shutter Island. What a magnificent uh, rock and roll performance that is. I think the problem with the reboot was in timing. They had just released the deluxe Blu-ray digitally remastered uh, box set of all of my movies months before or within the year before the the reboot. And uh, an entire new younger generation saw those films on a 50-inch flat screen in Dad's man cave with the lights turned off during a adolescent sleepover and those movies look great that way and they hold up especially parts five a double bill of three and four Wes Craven's new nightmare part seven and Freddy versus Jason which is still a comparatively recent film and uh, I, they had just seen those so I got an entire new generation you know in 2008 or 2009 whenever that happened and then they re-released the movie the reboot and i think that it suffered by comparison okay how hilarious is that he's like yeah i um i think it was a really good movie jackie earl haley is a rock and roll actor but uh you know i just think that you see my movies had just been re-released and uh they're better so, you know, it just, uh, you see, I'm better. And, uh, yeah, just, they didn't look, it didn't look good in comparison. I'm better. Wow. Okay. Well, way, <laughs> way to use a compliment to just totally backhand the crap out of the reboot. But, hey, what can we say? At least he's honest, right? Yes. Moving right along. Okay. What have we got here? All right. Well, the next film is a movie called Phantasm. Now, chances are that most of you haven't seen, probably haven't even heard of this movie, and that's unfortunate, because it is a good movie, and it deserves some goddamn respect. In this film, which came out in 1979, the residents of a small town have begun dying under strange circumstances, leading young Michael to investigate. After discovering that the tall man, yes, the tall man, who is actually basically a crypt keeper, the town's mortician is what I mean, after finding out that he's actually killing and then reanimating the dead as misshapen zombies, Mike seeks the help of his older brother, Jody, and local ice cream man, Reggie, played by Reggie Bannister. How do you get his name? Muses the character's name. I don't know. Working together, they try to lure out and kill the tall man, all the while avoiding his minions and a deadly silver sphere. Oh yes, that deadly silver sphere. Phantasm. The delusion of a disordered mind. A phantom. A spirit. A ghost. For nearly four decades, it has been contained... But evil always has a way of breaking free. Tommy's gone. (laughs) It's hard to believe. It was a good idea not to let your little brother come to the funeral. Hey, I don't like this place. Something weird is going on up there. The funeral is about to begin. 
observer. This year, a legendary classic returns. What's wrong with you? There's something up there. I saw it. With a complete restoration. You got some kind of an overactive imagination or something? I know you're not going to believe this, but these things were here. Oh, give me a break. Okay, I believe you. What we got to do is lay that sucker out flat and drive a stake right through his goddamn heart. I'm gonna run that tall bastard straight down to hell. You play a good game, boy. But the game is finished. Now you die. Phantasm. Oh, yes, Phantasm. And I have to say, the tall man, who is the central villain of this film, he was played by Angus Scrim, who comes from Kansas, just like me. He was great in these films. This film is very unique. It's like no other horror movie you'll ever, or at least that you've ever seen, yet because there's no other horror movie like it. I will say that just like A Nightmare on Elm Street, but not quite to the extent, it suffered from too many sequels as well. There were four originally, and guess what? The fifth one just recently came out, and it stars all the original actors, including Angus Scrim as the tall man. Boy! And Angus Scrim died, not but a couple weeks after filming. So God rest his soul, the tall man, and we're happy that he got to be a part of the Phantasm legacy forever. Moving right along. Sweet Jesus, you better believe we're moving right along here. The next film on our list of scariest movies of all time is a film that I actually went back and forth about including. It's called Hellraiser, and it came out in 1987. Basically, all right, here are my stories about Hellraiser, all right? I saw it uh, with my friend when I was very young, and this was in a phase where we loved scary movies. We would see, we would rent scary movies from Blockbuster Video every weekend and watch them in my basement overnight. Sounds fun. I mean, that still sounds fun. So we were flying through scary movies, and we eventually got to Hellraiser. And, you know, it's like fantasy meets sci-fi meets horror meets slasher, okay? It tells the story of sexual deviant, Frank, who inadvertently opens a portal to hell when he tinkers with a box that he bought while abroad. The act of tinkering with the box unleashes gruesome beings called Cenobites. That's right, Cenobites, who tear Frank's body apart. And I'm not kidding when I say that this might be some of the most gruesome, gory, nasty stuff I've ever seen on screen, and I'm gross. So, I mean, really, it's not for the faint of heart. A lot of disturbing imagery, a lot of blood, a lot of torture. And I'm not, to be honest, I'm not a big fan of that. I think that's kind of cheap. When you're using blood, guts, and gore and murder in a horror movie as kind of the sole scary element, well, I think that's kind of lazy and cheap. So I need the supernatural, I need the paranormal, I need something else. And it does have, of course, the Cenobites, led by Pinhead. Now, I worked at Planet Hollywood here in New York City for a hot second, then I had to quit before I killed myself, and we actually had the original Pinhead costume on display. Oh yeah, we had it. By the way, I want to point out that this movie, as I said, it came out in 1987. It came out on September 18th. 1987. Not just my birthday, but the actual day and year that I was born. This movie and I came to this earth on this same day. <laughs> I know it's hilarious. Anywho, yeah, so it is disturbing. I think maybe if you're like a Star Wars and Star Trek fan and you also like horror movies, you might, you'd probably really like this film. 
but it is disgusting. Here's a quick scene involving someone else who's tinkered with the wrong box. in time even further. Oh yes. I truly believe that one of the most identifying factors of the film and one of the most critical elements in what made the film so scary was the music. And so I'm just going to let the music tell you what the film is. Shall we? Well, friends, if you don't know by now, you just don't know the score. This is the music from the film Psycho, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, a classic among American cinema. Back when I did my episode on the best film scores of all time, this was not only included, but highly expanded upon. So I won't harp on it too much, but at the same time, I do have to say, the music in this film is almost like a a character in the movie. It adds so much to the overall feel and atmosphere throughout the film that I honestly believe if it weren't for the music, the movie would not be nearly as intense or scary or successful. Even Alfred Hitchcock himself is quoted as saying... 33% of the effect of Psycho was due to the music. How he came up with 33%, I'll never know. I would disagree. I would say it adds at least 57% to the tension and drama of the film. While Alfred Hitchcock was greatly fond of Bernard Herrmann and they had been partners for a long time, he was hesitant to hire him for this production, not because he didn't want him, he absolutely did, but Herrmann, he refused to accept a reduced fee for the film's lower budget. Totally worth it though, I would say, wouldn't you? What's very interesting and not many people know is that originally Hitchcock requested a jazz score for this film. A jazz score. I just can't even fathom that. Can you even picture... I mean, think of how different this film would be had there been a jazz score. I just don't understand how he ever thought that was a good idea. And obviously, Bernard Herrmann felt that same way because clearly he just went right ahead and totally disregarded Hitchcock's request. No, I will not hide in the fruit cellar. (laughs) You think I'm fruity, huh? Herman thought, well, he thought that the single tone color of the all-string soundtrack would be a good way of reflecting the black and white cinematography of the film. What a genius. What a genius he was. The film's main theme, which is what you're hearing right now, is a tense counterpuddle piece, and it sets the tone of impending violence. It returns three times throughout the film. 
Though nothing shocking occurs during the first 15 to 20 minutes of the movie, the title music remains in the audience's mind, lending tension to these early scenes. Herman maintains tension through the slower moments as well, uh, through the use of ostinato or even the use of silence. Here's a perfect example, probably the best example of how effective the use of silence can be in film, probably the best example of all time. I'm going to play the shower scene for you, and I want you to notice how, for the longest time, you hear no music. All you hear is the running water of the shower. Take a listen, folks. those of you who haven't seen the film, what's wrong with you? Go out and rent it and watch it today. But what's happening during that long period where you, all you he heard was the running water of the shower is you see, you see through the shower curtain that someone comes in the bathroom and slowly approaches the shower step by step. As it gets closer, you start to recognize the silhouette as that of an old woman. Knowing the character checked into the motel by herself, one can't help but wonder who this could be, and why are they approaching? Then suddenly it happens. <coughs> highly effective, highly, 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 highly regarded. You know what else is interesting and amazing? When you hear that sound of the knife being stabbed into the woman's skin. You know what they used to give that effect? They took a knife and they jammed it, stabbed it, if you will, into not a human body, but a fruit. I believe it was an apple. Not positive on the apple, but I know it was some kind of fruit. And that is the sound you're hearing when you hear the stabbing, stabbing, stabbing of the knife. And you know what, folks? I think I may just leave it at that. However, I would absolutely be remiss if I didn't at least mention what it is, what the overall theme of this movie is. I'll say, and this is quite subjective, so take it with a grain of salt, but I feel that the overall theme and the moral of the movie Psycho is that no matter how old you are, no matter where you are in life or where you came from in life, the truth is... That when you get right down to it... Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Say what you will, folks, but the truth remains, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situation. Mother knows best. It's sad when a mother has to speak the words that condemn her own son, but I couldn't allow them to believe that I would commit murder. They'll put him away now as I should have years ago. He was always bad, and in the end he intended to tell them I killed those girls and that man, as if I could do anything except just sit and stare, like one of his stuffed birds. Oh, they know I can't even move a finger, and I won't. I'll just sit here and be quiet, just in case they do suspect me. They're probably watching me, 
Well, let them. Let them see what kind of a person I am. I'm not even going to swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. Yes, we are going to move right along here. Gosh, Psycho, you don't get much better than that, folks, and so it's going to be hard to follow that one up. Whatever movie I talk, any movie I were to speak of after that one would look, well, it wouldn't look great in comparison. And so I went ahead and picked one that I don't even really like. (laughs) Here we go. Of course, I'm talking about... The reason it's on here is because I understand the historical significance. I also understand that a lot of people like it, and it did kind of create a genre. I'm talking, of course, about that 1978 hit, surprise hit, Halloween. Fun fact. Pardon me. This was one of the first songs I taught myself to play on the piano. Aren't I a prodigy? No, not a hard song. Very repetitive. Anywho, Halloween. Yes, of course. That classic film starring a young Jamie Lee Curtis written and directed by John Carpenter. It was it was made with a budget of $325,000 and has since gone on to make millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. Love it when that happens. It tells the story of a, on a cold Halloween night in 1963, a six-year-old named Michael Myers brutally murdered his 17-year-old sister, Judith. He was sentenced and locked away for 15 years. But on October 30th, 1978, while being transferred for a court date, a 21-year-old Michael Myers stole a car and escaped Smith's Grove Asylum. He returns to his quiet hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois, where he looks for his next victims. Oh, dear sweet mother of God. One character we meet fairly early on is a man named Dr. Loomis. Dr. Loomis has been working with Michael ever since he was first brought in after his first murder, and he explains to the police of Haddonfield just what kind of a monster they're dealing with. It's a monster the likes of which they've never seen. I met him 15 years ago. I I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this Six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. What do we do? He's been here once tonight. I think he'll come back. I'm going to wait for him. I still think I should notify the radio and television. No. If you do that, they'll see him on every street corner. They'll look for him in every house. Just tell your men to keep their mouths shut and their eyes open. I'll check back in an hour. The devil's eyes. Now, okay, let me just go in quickly and talk about why I've never been a huge fan of this film. I should be more specific. I don't mind the original. The original is fine. It's unique, and it's it's simplistic, which I like. Sometimes the simple can be the most terrifying. However, and I've made this complaint about movies already, there are ten different movies, ten iterations of this goddamn movie. 10. It started with Halloween. 
And then, that was in 1978. In 1981, John Carpenter, with his original writer, they wrote Halloween 2. Different director, but at least same writers. From that point forward, Halloween 3, Halloween 4, Halloween 5, 6, H2O, 20 years later, Halloween Resurrection, a remake, a reboot of Halloween, and another Halloween 2. Ten goddamn movies. And here's the thing, folks. How are they different? How... What changes from Halloween to Halloween? Almost nothing. <laughs> Almost nothing. Michael Myers, who, as we just heard, and I've described, and Dr. Loomis described, he's a young boy who went ballistic, killed his sister, and then 15, 20 years later came back to kill everybody else. Here's what I've never understood. We knew Michael Myers was a psychopath, a child who didn't know right from wrong, good from bad, he had the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes, pure evil. Fine and dandy, but we also understood that he was a human, was he not? Why can Michael Myers get shot, thrown off a roof, stabbed, beaten to death, burned alive? In one of the films, he even has his goddamn head chopped off, and he never seems to die. Is he not human? What is this son of a bitch? Why won't you die? That I never understood that. And that bothers me. It's like, what are we dealing with here? And also, for God's sake, he just keeps coming back with that knife. It's like, well, seriously, if I were Jamie Lee Curtis, by H2O, 20 years later, if he was still coming after me and nothing I had done to that point was killing him, I would just say, fine, kill me. Let's get this over with. Please. No more movies. Having said that, in 2007, Rob Zombie made a reboot of this film. Not another sequel, but actually start over. Let's make the same movie all over again. And I have to say, I really liked the reboot. I haven't seen his sequel. I only saw Halloween, his Halloween that came out in 2007. But here's why I liked it. The key differences that he added were backstory and information. We got to see Michael as a young kid, not for a split second, not just on the night of those murders, but we got to see him in school. We got to see him play. We got to see him behave and interact with other people. He actually spoke. We heard his voice. That gave him, gave us a more understanding of who he is and what he had gone through and kind of how he behaved before he became a murderer. I thought it added a lot. I wish we could have some more of that in the subsequent movies, but hey, those are over and done with and you can't change any of them now. I will say, I, I asked a overriding question and that was what changes from Halloween to Halloween? There's really only one movie that they tried to make a change in, and that was Halloween 3. It's called Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. That's the only movie in this franchise in which Michael Myers never occurs, never uh, appears. Weird, right? Nor does it include story elements from either the original Halloween or the second one. So it doesn't just change slightly. They, it makes a whole different movie. It treated the first film and apparently its sequels as fictional films as actually one of the characters watches a trailer for the original film in Halloween 3. So that movie tanked and so of course they went back to what worked and they've made it seven times since. I don't really get it. It did start the slasher genre so I'll give it that. And I, I like the original. I think it was a cool original idea and that's all I have to say about that. Moving right along. Oh, yes. Moving right along here to one of my favorite movies of all time. And I believe, yes, I believe it is the first Stephen King film or Stephen King story that we will be featuring. I'm talking about The Shining. Picture it. That aerial view of the mountains. The Shining tells the story of the Torrance family, Wendy, Jack, and their little boy, Danny. In the film, it's played by Jack Nicholson, 
Shelley Duvall and their little boys, played by a little boy that I'll find the name of. I know he's never been in anything else, so who cares what his name is, am I right? The little boy's name, of course, is Danny Lloyd. I knew it was Danny. Anywho. Jack Torrance is given the job of caretaker at the Overlook Hotel during their off-season months. He and his family are to live at the hotel in complete solitude. Little did he know that, well, actually, he was told right from the get-go. The hotel manager told him that there was a dark past here at the Overlook Hotel. A former caretaker... His name was Grady. Well, he went a little crazy, and he ended up murdering his wife and their two daughters. And then he blew his brains out. Yes, it's a dark, dark chapter of their past, but it's ancient history, and we hope it won't affect your decision, Mr. Torrance. Well, it didn't. He still took the job, and he went with his family to the Overlook Hotel. But boy, it did not take long for things to take a dark turn. Yes, these little ghost twins follow Danny Torrance around, and all hell breaks loose in this hotel. In fact, one of the penultimate scenes is, you see, Jack Torrance is a recovering alcoholic, and when things start to go badly in the hotel, his family seems to be coming undone at the seams. Well, he finds himself roaming the halls, walking into the big abandoned ballroom of the Overlook Hotel, and he basically... He actually says, I'd give my goddamn soul for just just a glass of beer. Then Lloyd the bartender shows up. Before you know it, there's a huge party going on. And he doesn't seem phased by it. It must be ghosts or something, or maybe it's all in his imagination. All we know is that he's enjoying himself until he gets bumped into and he's caused to spill a drink all over himself by a butler that feels terrible. The butler, of course, takes him into the bathroom to clean him up and offer more apologies. And while they're in there, it's revealed that the butler's name is Delbert Grady. Delbert Grady? The the caretaker who Jack Torrance was told about? The one who murdered his wife and kids? Jack doesn't beat around the bush. Oh, no, he doesn't. But he's also surprised by the response he gets. Miss Grady, aren't you once the caretaker here? Why not, sir? I don't believe so. You, uh, married man, are you, Mr. Grady? Yes, sir. Hmm? I have a wife and, uh, two daughters, sir. Hmm? And, uh, where are they now? Oh, they're somewhere around. I'm not quite sure at the moment, sir. Mr. Grady, you were the caretaker here. I recognize you. I saw your picture in the newspapers. You, uh, chopped your wife and daughter up into little bits. And uh, then you blew your brains out. That's strange, sir. I don't have any recollection of that at all. Mr. Grady, you were the caretaker here. 
I'm sorry to differ with you, sir. But you are the caretaker. You've always been the caretaker. I should know, sir. I've always been here. Now, that leads to a bunch of questions, and it's one of many things that leads to many questions throughout this film, most of which go unanswered, really. And depending on who you talk to about this movie, you'll probably hear different versions of what it's supposed to mean, what it really means, and all that stuff. But what I can tell you for sure, for certain, I'm just certain about this, is that Jack Torrance is a ticking time bomb. He was always, you could tell from the very beginning, Stephen King, by the way, hates this film. I think it's kind of ridiculous, but he does. He hates this uh, adaptation of his novel because he says it's one of the most ridiculous things, I think, that he says is that Stanley Kubrick was so cold and I'm warm. You see, in my novel, the hotel burns down. In his movie, it freezes. There's the difference between the two of us. Huh? Ridiculous. Anyway, he doesn't like the film, but one, you know, one thing that he actually does say is that you can tell Jack Torrance is a little off-kiltered from the very beginning. He doesn't seem like a nice, warm, loving man ever in the film, and I guess I can see that a little bit. But the more time he spends in the Overlook Hotel, the more he becomes unhinged. And one very volatile topic between Jack Torrance and his wife Wendy is the subject of their son, Danny. He's not doing well in this hotel. He's clearly affected. Something is wrong here. Wendy wants to take him out of the hotel and take him back into civilization, perhaps to a doctor, just get him out of the hotel. Jack does not like that idea at all. You are concerned about him. And are you concerned about me? Of course I am. Of course you are. Have you ever thought about my responsibilities? Oh, Dick, what are you talking about? Have you ever had a single moment's thought about my responsibilities? Have you ever thought for a single solitary moment about my responsibilities to my employers? Has it ever occurred to you that I have agreed to look after the Overlook Hotel until May the 1st? Does it matter to you at all that the owners have placed their complete confidence and trust in me and that I have signed a letter of agreement, a contract, in which I have accepted that responsibility? You have the slightest idea what a moral and ethical principle is, do you? Has it ever occurred to you what would happen to my future if I were to fail to live up to my responsibilities? Has it ever occurred to you? Has it? Aren't they just the loveliest of couples? Moving right along. 